Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we're going to talk about Army First Sergeant Aaron Jagger. Jagger was the first sergeant or senior enlisted advisor within Charlie 137 Armor, part of the 1st Armored Division. And on August 9th, 2006, he would give his life while fighting in Ramadi, Iraq. I'm excited to dive into this one today because it's a little bit different. When we, over the last, you know, quite a few episodes, talk mostly Medal of Honor recipients and their incredible story after incredible story from some awesome American heroes. Many of them have something documented. Well, not many of them, all of them, because there's a Medal of Honor citation, have something documented about that action. Sometimes that action costs them their life. Other times it's a, you know, an incredible act or series of acts for which they'd be awarded the Medal of Honor. But there's something documented that they did during their their service. One of the challenges we have in the most recent conflicts, and not to play down any others because this has happened in warfare throughout time, but not every casualty is during a major invasion. Look at World War II. Not every casualty was on Omaha Beach. Not, um, not every casualty in the Iraq war was in the 2003 invasion where, where it's a very clear cut series of events. And you can tell somebody's story about this, you know, because it's tied to this major historical event, because we've been at war for so long in Iraq and Afghanistan. And again, we're going to, I'm going to focus on these two conflicts, but this does hold through throughout history. There are soldiers in harm's way every hour of every day for, you know, let's say 15 years straight, 10, 15 years straight. And there were many cases where many, many, many cases where soldiers are killed doing something like going to visit a village elder on a Thursday that they had done 17 times already that month. That Thursday wasn't any different, but the insurgents or the enemy got lucky that day or the American patrol got unlucky, whichever way you want to look at it. And, and that day cost one, two, three, five American lives. That's the nature of kind of the grinding counterinsurgency warfare that we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what, what's so challenging then when you have a loved one or, or somebody you, you, even just somebody you know of that has lost their life in one of these conflicts, when you look up the information about these people, what you end up seeing is a sentence or two that says, you know, Joe soldier was killed in Iraq well, let's, let's, Joe Soldier was killed in, in Kandahar, Afghanistan, when the enemy detonated an improvised explosive device near his vehicle on September 1st, 2007, whatever it is, right? That doesn't tell you anything. There are hundreds of soldiers, Marines, service members within the United States and international coalition that have that same write-up under their name. It doesn't provide much information about what actually happened. But not every one of those circumstances are different, right? The person going to visit the village elder on a Thursday in Fallujah, Iraq in 2004, that's a totally different mission. The reason they're there, what they're doing, what's going through their head, their, their unit's mission, that's all different. 
every single one of these is different, but unfortunately we end up kind of grouping them together and, and having a very generic sentence or two to memorialize that person. Now I might be being a little harsh here because I'm, what is the U S government going to do for each one of these when there's a lot of information that maybe can't be released or, or I don't know, I don't know how they would do it so much better. Right. But, um, what the, the reason I'm excited today to talk about First Sergeant Aaron Jagger is this is going to be my attempt to humbly tell a little bit of a story about this incredible American and hopefully provide some context to what was going on in and around the day he died in August of 2006. And the way I'm going to do that is how we, we've historically taken these, these episodes is we're going to provide some context about the Battle of Ramadi. And what American forces, specifically First Sergeant Jagger and 137 Armor, are doing to try to win the fight and win the war in Ramadi in 2006. So to back off a little bit and talk Iraq war, in 2003, American forces, coalition forces, I should say, invaded Iraq. The bulk of forces on the ground, well, a lot of the forces on the ground were American. And in relatively short order, a handful of weeks, the Iraq government and Iraqi military fell. And since that time, the international coalition has been in conflict in Iraq. I think it's still fair to say, as we sit here in October of 2020, that things are not back to normal. And I think it'll be a long time before we can say what normal Iraq is going to be for a lot of reasons. But, but one of which is hard to look past is because the United States and some other countries came in in 2003 and, and completely disrupted a system that was, was um, operating. There's debate, of course, whether or not, um, you know, there are still folks today and there will be for a long time, as we should debate this, Saddam was, was effective, but ruthless. And if we could go back, would we take the same action now, knowing how many Iraqis have died and how many civilians have been displaced in retrospect, is it, is it better than under Saddam? But that's a rabbit hole. We're not going to go down today, but the Iraq government and Iraqi military fell relatively quickly with not a massive coalition loss of life. But in the years after that, an insurgency started to form and there's varying degrees of, you know, we group that under one umbrella. We say it's an insurgent, it's an enemy fighter. And it's not, it doesn't really do justice to the complexity that people like first Sergeant Jagger were facing on the ground especially in a place like Ramadi, Iraq in 2006, because an insurgent could be somebody who's, I mean, there's the, the simple, easy story that's, that's repeated time and again, because it's true. Somebody who decides they're going to avenge the death of somebody they care about. And maybe they were just growing up in this town, but, but American forces went in and right, wrong, or, or on purpose or on accident killed somebody they care about. They're going to take up arms. Now they are a, insurgent fighter. You have that. And that person, by the way, may or may not even have the means to do that. And then you can swing all the way over to the other side. And we're going to talk about foreign terrorist organizations that have taken root specifically in Ramadi. On that far end of the spectrum, you have something at this time period, I'm going to use the term Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now that organization has morphed quite a bit, both in, well, in a lot of ways it's morphed. It is generally considered the group from which the Islamic State in Iraq, or the Islamic State that we know today came from. It, it 
loosely formed around 2003, around the American invasion, but there's ties back to the late 90s. It's been an organization that's adapted over time. Um, but in 2006, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was a foreign terrorist organization, meaning that they might have their leadership or their structure in Iraq with most of their activities, almost almost all of their activities. There were some international, but almost all of their activities are going to take place in Iraq. But the organization is recruiting international. So there are fighters coming from around the world to join the Islamic State in Iraq because their message appeals to a broad audience. That insurgent fighter that we talk about who, you know, his older brother maybe was killed by American forces and decides I need to avenge my older brother. That's a very targeted, very specific type message. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was preaching jihad and they were talking, um, you know, expelling American forces and coalition forces from Arab lands, from the Middle East entirely. And their message um, has resonated for a long period of time. And I think that message, one of the reasons we've seen um, that the Islamic State saw success, I think that message was still resonating. In 2006, that organization called Ramadi Home. And it's weird to think about that. I mean, it, it was public because they were recruiting to get people into the country to join their fight. It's interesting to think about, but we had we had a lot of Americans in country. We had a lot of coalition forces in country, but never really enough to fully lock down everywhere. And one of the focuses from day one is Baghdad. It's the the majority of the population within Iraq that it it early on, well, really throughout the war, saw it's right up there in terms of total violence, um, as much if not more violence than anywhere else in the country. But we just didn't have the people to lock down every city and town. That takes a lot of people on the ground, a lot of soldiers and Marines on the ground. And what we would see first was in 2004. 2004 was um, saw some major battles in Fallujah, which is a mere 30 miles away. Now, if you're, if you're looking at Iraq, you have Baghdad sitting roughly center of the country, the capital of the country, flooded with an international presence, but definitely seeing a lot of violence throughout the war. If you move west about 30-ish miles, you hit Fallujah. And Fallujah in 2004 saw some of the deadliest fighting to date in the war. Now, the war hadn't been going on for for too awful long, but it was a pretty brutal fight in Fallujah in 2004. You move another 30 miles west and you hit Ramadi. Now, this is important because this corridor west is taking you through the Euphrates River Valley. And that river valley, that transportation hub takes you right into Syria. That, you know, I, I, I want to say rat line because it's how you move supplies kind of quietly and underground and, and sneakily um, in a war zone, but it's a highway. And there's just a lot of homes, a lot of structures, a lot of places to store equipment and enemy fighters as they're coming and going from Syria. The bulk of foreign fighters that we saw in Iraq were making their way into the country and exiting the country as needed usually through Syria. That border had a little more openings, had more um, maybe access is the way to say it. And then, of course, once you left Syria, if you're in the Euphrates River Valley and you end up in Iraq, these foreign terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda in Iraq were heavily Sunni. And as soon as you cross that border from Syria and Iraq, well, in parts of Syria as well, but you're in, in Sunni-dominated territory. So it made sense for this organization, AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, to resupply from the West, from Syria, through the Euphrates River Valley, and bam, you hit Ramadi. It's a great place to stage as you push push 
um, east into Fallujah, if you're going to go back after that, and then, of course, into Baghdad, the capital. And if you can sow fear, distrust, and, uh, and violence in the capital city, it shows the strength of your organization. And that's one of the reasons that in the really spring of 2006, Ramadi would see upwards of 5,000 al-Qaeda fighters taking hold of that city. And the Americans on the ground are, it's just not, they don't have the resources to hold, to take and hold that city like this 5,000 strong enemy force has done. And there's parts of Ramadi that are borderline off limits, borderline no-go zones, because American troops could get in there and might not be able to get out. So we, we loosely refer to this as the second battle of Ramadi because there was another fight in 2004 that was, was smaller by comparison, but this second battle of Ramadi would go from March to November of 2006, about eight months. And, you know, it's, it's not like the invasion of Iraq, where there's a very clear start and end date, but we look at this second battle of Ramadi starting in March, again, ending in November. And as those attacks kick off quickly, word spreads to the top American leadership. We have to get some reinforcements in here. The American forces, I believe predominantly Marines at this point in Ramadi are, I mean, they're outnumbered. They're outnumbered. Um, they, they can't hold the territory. They physically don't have the right amount of people to hold the territory that they're being asked to hold. The Iraqi police and Iraqi military are still being trained, still getting up to speed, maybe not quite where we need them to at this point, you know, by 2006, all of a sudden you're talking about having to retake territory from AQI. It's not just keep them out. It's they're in, they're entrenched. They have their neighborhoods. They are the legitimate authority to a lot of Iraqis living in Ramadi. And that was a problem because the Iraq war is not just about, it was not just about killing enemy fighters. It was about winning the support and trust of the population. So they wouldn't accept those foreign fighters in the first place. We wanted to help stand up the Iraqi military, the Iraqi police, the Iraqi government. Of course, remember every one of these, we talked about it in, in Vietnam, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we want to leave. The goal is to leave. The goal is not to be there for 15, 20 years. So to do that, we have to make sure that there is a legitimacy recognized by the people of that government. In Ramadi, one of the problems is that the foreign fighter force is so strong and holds so much of the city that there are parts of Ramadi where the, you know, the organization that you go to if you need something is Al-Qaeda. That's crazy in 2006, right? Um, they held more sway because there were parts of the city that American and Iraqi units couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't go into on their own. So an offensive is launched by summer of 2006 to retake Ramadi. And a lot of folks, the American units are really looking at Fallujah as a way to do this. And Fallujah was a I mean, just a brutal fight, nasty house-to-house fight. The insurgents had dug in. It was a similar enemy, um, kind of a an earlier version of Al-Qaeda in Iraq was, was in Fallujah. So when you're coming into Ramadi, you're probably going to hit a lot of these guys. And those are the people that are fighting, shooting at, and, and detonating IEDs all across Ramadi against American forces to begin with. The idea is going to be to take a little slower approach. There's going to be announcements to try to get these civilians out. And instead of kind of a, a you know an assault into the city that was effective in Fallujah, it's going to be a little slower approach, kind of, you know, think of it like closing a circle around the city center from the outside in. To do that, we need to have some reinforcements. 
one of the units that we look to for reinforcements is the first armor division. One of the battalions within that is 137 armor, first battalion, 37th armor regiment. That is the unit, Charlie, um, Charlie company specifically that army first sergeant, <laughs> I don't know why I said army there, that first sergeant Aaron Jagger is a part of, and his unit is moved in, I believe June of 2006 into Ramadi. They enter the fight in South central Ramadi that summer during some of the peak fighting during this eight month long second battle of Ramadi. But one of the challenges in any one of these conflicts in these, in this urban environment is it's not, you know, I, I'm guilty of thinking you're going into this fight. And when, when I'm looking at historical events, that is like, like this and thinking there's a city and that's your terrain. And I almost forget that there are, that it's heavily populated. There's 500,000 civilians in Ramadi. You know, every house has a family. Every store has an owner. You know, every street corner is where, where a civilian wants to walk and, and, and maybe, maybe he's going to walk right before a firefight kicks off. So people like first Sergeant Jagger have to, have to deal with that because remember our first example of an insurgent is you accidentally kill somebody and their family members take up arms against you and your brothers. So Jagger and his men are having to keep this in their mind while they enter these deadly Ramadi streets flooded with Al Qaeda fighters that are at this point in the war, well-trained. They are experienced. They have, sizable weapons stores, their IEDs, improvised explosive devices have adapted throughout the war because they have had a lot of practice and they have things like radio controlled IEDs, but maybe the Americans jam those. So they have command wire, literally a wire running to somebody who will detonate the bomb and it'll go off maybe under the vehicle, maybe near the American troops, things like pressure plate IEDs, where it's essentially a homemade mine. And when something or someone moves over that and, and, and depresses the, the, um, a portion of that pressure plate, it detonates and kills whoever is on top or may, you know, maybe kills whoever's on top. The fighters in Ramadi are experienced. This few months stretch in Iraq, we'll see some of the most violent. We'll see some of the deadliest days and the most violent days in the Iraq war. It's an entrenched enemy. It's an experienced enemy and reinforcements are called like for Sergeant Jagger but the challenge is they have to clear these people out, like we were saying, while the civilians live there, and you can't isolate the civilians. So one of the ideas that Jagger and his unit come up with is, is kind of this idea of a census. They're going to go around house to house and as often as they can interact with the Iraqi population because that's why they're there in the first place, right? You're trying to win the support of the people, and it's so easy to get caught in the mindset of, right, but there's al-Qaeda across the street. we gotta, we got to go kill those guys. But if you just kill the enemy fighters, you may or may not win the support. But if you win the support of the people, it's possible that they will help you turn against AQI. That's a little bit of what we saw towards the end of this battle. Kind of when you when we consider wrapping up the second battle of Ramadi is something called the Anbar Awakening, which is going to be brought about for a lot of reasons. But but one of them is going to be that there's a level of support, a level of trust that starts to be developed between Sunni tribes that are are not on board with this Al-Qaeda terrorist organization in their backyards and the coalition forces. So that can only be done not by killing more and more enemy fighters, but by, by helping pull the population onto your side. So Jagger and his men are conducting census, a census of sorts to kind of get to know the people in the town, but they're also establishing combat outposts or cops is what they're called 
all throughout the city because how can you get to know these people? How can you say that you're protecting these people if you if your presence is that you drive in and drive out every other day? Al-Qaeda lives across the street and they see the Americans come and go. So something that's worked well up to this point in the Iraq war and, and, and was utilized in both conflicts is, and it's not new, it's something we, we did in Vietnam as well, but put your people out amongst the local population, build those ties. It's what we're talking about today when we you, you, you hear arguments about how police departments should work. And you hear it over and over again, where it's, hey, you should be on the ground with the people, get to know the community. Don't show up in an armored car once a week and call that security. It's the same concept in Ramadi. The challenge that First Sergeant Jagger and his men face is they need to win the support of the people. They need to be seen. They need to be present. They need to interact with the citizens of Ramadi. But again, there's 5,000 Al-Qaeda fighters, experienced, well-trained, well-equipped, Al-Qaeda fighters trying to kill them every chance they get. So it would be very, very easy in the midst of this to kind of buckle down and say, well, what are we going to do? We got to win the support of the people, but to do that, we're going to get, you know, we, we go into harm's way or we get into a fight, or maybe you push the Iraqi unit out there and say, hey, these are your, <laughs> these are your fellow citizens. You go do it. That's not the approach that the soldiers in 137 took. And one of the reasons it's not the approach they took is because their leaders, like First Sergeant Aaron Jagger, led by example and went out and put themselves at risk in order to show how this should be done. So rather than stay back and just wait for the enemy to attack, it sounds crazy, but it wouldn't have been hard to sit in your base, wait for the insurgents to attack. They're going to. And then you do everything you can to kill those two, three, five, ten a week. Next thing you know, after two months of fighting, you've killed 60 insurgents. You've done your job, successful deployment, come on home. But First Sergeant Jagger and his men know that that's not actually going to win the war. There's a common refrain in both of these conflicts that you don't want to come back. You really don't want to come back. Do it right the first time so you don't have to come back. In turn, Jagger's out on a patrol on August 9th, and he's braving those streets. He's running the risk of driving into what could be enemy ambushes. He's he's running the risk of, of maybe finding enemy IEDs in order to be out and about to interact with the people, to see the citizens of Ramadi. Again, we don't want to come back. We don't want to have to be here again. He's leading, leading by example. And on August 9th, as he was making his way back to Combat Outpost Spear, one of the many combat outposts uh, that that 137 set up in, in the midst of Ramadi, in the midst of this incredibly deadly, deadly environment. As he's moving back to Cop Spear, an IED is detonated under his vehicle. And at the age of 43, First Sergeant Aaron Jagger is killed, along with Army Specialist Ignacio Ramirez and Specialist Shane Woods. Jagger didn't have to be out moving through the city. Again, one of the deadliest areas in all of Iraq. Especially, I mean, not only at this time in the war, but throughout the duration of the Iraq war, the second battle of Ramadi was one of the nastiest fights throughout all in that conflict would cost almost 100 American lives and upwards of 1000 insurgents killed in that eight month stretch. And in some of the most intense months of fighting as a first sergeant, I can tell you that Jagger could have sat back and done a lot of other things than go on patrol. He could have justified writing reports, attending meetings, working logistics, maybe spending a lot of time with the medics trying to make sure that the, the casualty collection points are all set and 
there's a hundred things you could have done to make sure that he didn't have to go out on a patrol because people die on those patrols. But instead, as a first sergeant, he led from example, got out, went forward with his men. And, uh, and on August 9th of 2006, it cost him his life, but he set the example for his men to continue on with the mission and win that fight that would uh, wrap up just a few months later, November 15th of 2006. So again, today talking a little bit about the context and the background um, to provide a little more information about an incredible American hero, Army First Sergeant Aaron Jagger, killed on August 9th, 2006, during the Second Battle of Ramadi in Iraq. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.